Thank you for that ministry of music. We've been considering for Advent the significance of God coming down to us. God establishing a intimate and personal relationship to his people. We have seen in past weeks instances, times, situations in which God came down to meet the needs of his people and to accomplish their deliverance. Because of the incarnation and Jesus coming down from heaven to be born as a child in order to redeem us, because of the incarnation and reconciling work of Christ, God is going to come down to us in the fullest sense imaginable in the future. God is going to eternally, fully, completely come down from heaven to be with his people on the earth, providing their full deliverance, protection, and well-being. God will permanently dwell with his people on earth. This final coming down of God is described for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. If you're not there in your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. The key verse is verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So the theme is the consideration of God coming down to dwell with his people eternally. We note in our text that in the future there will be a total transformation of heaven and earth as we know it. It says there will be a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. It will be the same but yet different. Think of the new earth as a resurrected earth, if you will. It is a redeemed earth. Heaven and earth are described as new because they're going to be radically transformed. It tells us in verse 1 that I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The old heaven and earth are not passing out of existence as we are going to develop throughout the rest of this text, but they are passing away in the sense that they will be dramatically changed. It will be something quite new and different. A part of the transformation is that sin, along with its effects upon this earth, are going to be totally eradicated. It tells us in verse 1, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, what does that mean when it says the sea was no more? I understand that, as do many commentators, as symbolic language. The sea is seen often in the scriptures as the place to which sin has been banished. For example, in the book of Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, reads, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. The sea is seen as that place, that huge area in which sin is going to be drowned and it falls to the very bottom of the sea. In saying that there will be no more sea, understand that to mean that the effects of sin are going to be totally eradicated. As a result, all of creation is going to be radically transformed. The benefits of sin's curse being removed for all creation is told to us in the book of Romans as many Old Testament passages do as well. But Romans chapter 8 reads, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this whole creation as we know it has been stained by sin. The fall had a devastating consequence not only for Adam and Eve, but for all of creation. Even the very earth itself, the, the thistles that grew, the, the pollution, the, the thorns, the difficulties that this earth knows is a result of the fall. But all of that is going to be dealt with. All of creation will experience the deliverance from the consequences of the fall. Not just human beings. All of creation. Many of you know, I was reminded this morning by a number of people that we're going to sing my favorite Christmas carol, and it's my favorite hymn. It's Joy to the World, number 120, and what I love so much about it is the third stanza. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That curse being that penalty that came as a result of Adam's fall. A penalty that came on all of creation. Well, the full extent of that curse is going to be done away with. It's going to be removed. The major or central aspect of the transformation of heaven and earth is that the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven to earth. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The new Jerusalem is holy as compared to the old earthly Jerusalem that was far from holy, which is developed many places in the Old Testament and even in the book of Revelation. But we don't have time to look at that at this point. But note that the heavenly Jerusalem already exists. For it is coming down out of heaven. The heavenly Jerusalem is the present residence of God, the angelic realm, and the departed saints. 
Let me say it again. The heavenly Jerusalem is the present residence of God, the angelic realm, and the departed saints. In the book of Hebrews, there is a contrast that is drawn between coming to Mount Zion and coming to, of the Old Testament, when the Ten Commandments were given, to this coming to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion. Hebrews 12, 22 reads, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That heavenly city, that heavenly Jerusalem is the place where God now resides and the departed saints, their spirits go to be with God. That dwelling place, that heavenly Jerusalem is seen as coming down out of heaven to the new earth. It is the new Jerusalem because it will no longer be the heavenly Jerusalem. It now will be the earthly Jerusalem. The significance of the new Jerusalem coming down of heaven is that God will permanently dwell with his people. The first significance is that the heavenly Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, will now be on the earth and God will be dwelling on the earth with his people. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the heavens saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He dwells among us. Grant Osborne, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, says this. In the new heaven and new earth, the two are finally completely united. There will never be an on earth down here and a heaven up there. The heavenly temple of Revelation 7, 15, 11, 19, 14, 15 to 17 has descended in the form of a city and has become the eternal home of the saints. Richard Phillips in his commentary on the book of Revelation, says this, we are reminded by this that the Bible places the final destiny of God's people not an ephemeral, wispy heaven, but on a redeemed earth where God's creation comes to a glorious, eternal end. I think that's so important to realize. Somehow this idea of, of eternity being in a disembodied state in heaven is just foreign to what the scriptures actually teach. The end is a new heaven, a new earth, which is a transformed earth as we know it with God dwelling with us on that earth which is this earth transformed.
formed. The word for dwelling place is the tabernacle's shining glory. It's a kind of glory. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. The earthly tabernacle was fashioned after the heavenly tabernacle. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. There was a pattern that was to reflect what was in heaven. This tabernacle in which God would dwell with his people. The heavenly temple is described in the book of Revelation. Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. So this temple is in heaven. There was a model made for the earth in which God dwelt in his Shekinah glory. He came down in the form of a cloudy pillar by day, a fiery pillar by night, and his glory filled the holiest of holies. So we have the tabernacle, which later, which was basically a tent and was movable for all the time the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, but when they came to the promised land, inhabited Jerusalem, then a temple was built to house the Ark of the Covenant and the other furniture items of the tabernacle. And there was temple worship. In the progression that we see from Old Testament to New Testament, at Christ's death, the veil in the temple is torn in two. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. It was demonstrating that now there was access into the most holy place because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, in the sovereignty of God, and in complete fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in 70 AD, that temple was destroyed. And there is no longer an earthly temple. And the Old Testament prophesies that there will come a time in which there will be sacrifices no more. It's really an astounding thought that the Jewish faith would continue on but without earthly sacrifices. It's because the true sacrifice has come once and for all. But we find in our text that the God who formerly resided in the temple will now reside permanently on the earth, but not in a temple, but in a holy city. We are told specifically that there'll be no need for a temple on earth. Revelation 21, 22 and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no need for 
sacrifice. There is no need for an altar. There is no separation between God and his worshipers. He replaces the temple. His presence is going to be manifested and all will be able to worship him directly. In the New Jerusalem on earth, there is no temple for there is a complete, free, full access to God. The dwelling place of God is with man. The second significance of God dwelling with us in the New Jerusalem on earth is that we will be his people in the fullest sense of that word. Notice in verse 3, and they will be his people. There are numerous places in the Old Testament in which God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I think there's 28 references in the Old and New Testament to that basic truth. Israel in the Old Testament, however, did not fulfill their responsibilities in the covenant of being God's people. They were disobedient. They were rebellious. They went after other gods. They were not faithful to God. However, in the New Jerusalem, God will be worshipped and served. Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And now this statement, and his servants will worship him. Worship him. Not in the form of temple worship, but worshiping him in spirit and in ultimate truth. There are great pictures of informing theology in the Old Testament of God's faithfulness to his, his people, of the way in which he does not forget them and how he will care for and provide for them. He will be their God. Okay. The first picture is given to us in the garb of the high priest, what he was to wear on his breastplate as he entered into the holiest of holies. Exodus 28, 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. The high priest wore on his breastplate the names of the children of Israel, that they would come up as a remembrance before God. Then even more strikingly in Isaiah, in Isaiah, God is pictured as having tattooed our names on his hands as a sign of his love and commitment for us. You know, people get tattoos uh, sometimes in order to express their, their love and their commitment to that special someone in their life. God tattoos our names on his hands, as it were. Isaiah 49, 13 and following. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. 
For the Lord has comforted us, his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I will not forget you. I will not forget you. Now, we have in the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 4, it says, Then we shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Having God's name on our forehead, following all of the informing theology, is speaking of not forgetting our God, being totally committed to him. We belong to him. We will faithfully worship and serve him. It will be a holy city. There is nothing that is unrighteous or that defiles that is going to enter into that city. There is going to be no more sin. Let me put that to you in one specific way. When asked by a Pharisee a question to Jesus, what is the first and great commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. I long for that day. When I will finally love God with all my heart, with all my soul and all my mind. And we all will. We will worship like never before. Our response will be sweet and precious for we are his people. The third significance is that we will have a deeper and more intimate relationship with God. Revelation 21, 3, and it says that in the end of verse 3, that God himself will be with them. God himself will be with them. Not just angelic beings or people that God has sent to minister to his people, but the very fullness of God's presence will be made known. Remember, in the Old Testament, the people could not enter the tabernacle. The high priest was the only one that could enter the, the most holy place, and he could only do that once a year. But the people could not even enter the holy place, and not even all the priests could. 
uh, Korah and his clan were not even allowed to see the vessels. They carried them, but they weren't allowed to, to, to see them. They had to be covered before they went in and, and they moved them. But not only could they not enter into his presence, but there was a, a limitation. There, there was a distance that was created between God and his people. On Mount Zion, God appeared to Moses. And Moses had a request of God. He said, Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You may not see my face. No one can see my face and live. Listen to the words of Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. They will see his face. To see God's face is to see God as he actually is. We will finally know God in the fullness of that word. We will have complete understanding and appreciation for all that God has done for us for the first time. All people will know them. Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Every single one will know him. You won't need a teacher. There aren't going to be any Bible studies in the New Jerusalem. We will know him fully. There will be no more questions. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 reads, For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We are going to understand the great mysteries of which we just can't get our minds around now. We will understand it all. The scriptures tell us that the angels even desire to look into salvation, and they can't. But we will. The fourth significance of God coming down with us in New Jerusalem on earth is that God will be a full deliverer, protector, and provider for his people. 
For it says to us in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. And God himself will be with him. And then it says this, as their God. The informing theology of the Old Testament is that God is a God to Israel in the sense that he provides for them. He will care for them. It is covenant language. You will be my people. I will be your God. All right? You belong to me. I will take care for you. It's referred to in ancient language as a Caesarean covenant. And that is when one in authority takes people under them with the promise that you will serve me and I'll take care of all your needs. God says, I will be your God. I will do everything that a God does for you. In Exodus, he reads, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out of the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The description of God's deliverance and provision for us is given to us in the next verse, in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 21. It says, as he is our God, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Life as we know it will be radically changed. tells us in verse 4 that the former things have passed away. Language that we already heard. But what does that mean? I, I've said that it doesn't mean that it passes out of existence. We are told more fully in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, we get a fuller account of the new heaven and new earth. And in Isaiah 65, verse 17, it reads as follows. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And instead of saying the former things are passed away, listen to what it says. I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come into mind. That's what is meant by the phrase, they have passed away. They will not be remembered or come into mind. That is... They will not be brought lovingly to reflection. We have a negative example in the book of Exodus for the children of Israel. When they wandered in the wilderness, they remembered, same Hebrew word that's used in Isaiah 65, 17, for this wilderness experience, remembering. Listen to the account. Numbers 11, verse 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept. Listen to the parallels. There'll be no more weeping. The children of the uh, people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, 
and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. We had it so good in Egypt. Now all we have is this manna. They complained. They wept. They remembered. In the New Jerusalem, when it says that all things are passed away, it's talking about a remembrance fondly of this life. You know, I hear people talk about the good old days in Jerusalem. No one is going to be talking about the good old days here on earth. No one's going to long to go back. No one's going to say that was so much better. And we can say to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord is far better. But this day is coming, this new Jerusalem. And there will be no regrets. All of our desires will be fulfilled. Listen to the words of 1 John. And this world is passing away. Here we go with that phrase again. This world is passing away along with its desires. Along with its desires. The things that we want now are the wrong things. We are looking for happiness, contentment, security in all the wrong places. It's to be found in Christ. It's in Christ that all of our desires are met. And that will be fully realized in this new Jerusalem on earth. The benefits of God coming down out of heaven in the new Jerusalem is the great application of the truth. Here we have a series of statements by God as to what his coming down in the new Jerusalem will result in. Verse, 20, verse 5 of chapter 21. He was seated on the throne said. So here's God's interpretation of what his coming down out of heaven is going to mean for us. Behold, I am making all things new. God is making all things new is a summation and application of this new heaven and new earth. Behold, I'm making all things new. Here is the essence of the creation of the new heaven and new earth. Again, Richard Phillips says, it is not the obliteration of all things as we know them. A better understanding is that the cleansing and renewal of the cosmos after Christ returns. And he says this, instead of making all new things, Christ makes all things new. Note the distinction? He's not making all new things. He's making all things new. 
again, just think about it as in terms of the resurrection body. We are going to have the same body, yet a different body. It is a resurrection body. We're talking about a resurrected earth in which all of sin in its fullness has been removed and all of the blessings of being in the presence of God are going to be ours. Grant Osborne, in his commentary, puts it this way. It is a qualitative as opposed to a temporal newness. There will be a whole new reality, a new kind of existence in which all the negatives of the first, that is, all the negatives of this existence, are done away. God will create a glorious new world that far surpasses this one for us to dwell in with him. He then said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can bank on this, take notes, keep a record of what I'm saying. The whole salvific plan of God will be fulfilled and experienced. Verse 6, he said to me, it is done. It is done. Meaning, it all comes into being. It is finished. On the cross, Jesus said, it is, it is finished. Salvation has been won. Here, here, all of the salvific benefits of Christ's death are going to be applied. Everything that he got for us, all spiritual blessings in the heaven places in Christ are going to be fully and completely realized in this new Jerusalem. Saved to the uttermost. It is done. God, the sovereign one, from whom all things exist, will accomplish it. Verse 6, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, which he states three times in the book of Revelation, and I can't go into that. But we see that God will graciously supply the needs of his people. Verse 6, he said to me, it is done, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give him spring of the water of life without payment. We will know the fullness of God's grace. Everything that we will have is a result of God's grace, his goodness to us not earned, not merited, bestowed upon us. And then there comes the warning to all. To the believer are the joys of intimate fellowship with God. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This intimacy, this dearness, I will be a God to him. They will be a son to me. I didn't have time, but I'll, I'll make reference. You can go back and look it up in Isaiah 65. It, it talks about how we will be a joy to God, and God will be a joy to us. Isn't that a wonderful thought? 
that God will delight in us, that he will have great joy in us, and we will have great joy in him. There's a warning to the rebellious unbeliever, a future of untold misery, verse 8. But for the cowardly, the fatherless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the, which is the second death, which means total and final separation from God, which is the most hideous aspect. Okay? We are going to know fellowship with God. The unbeliever is going to know separation from God, which means absolutely no blessing, absolutely no grace, no mercy, no compassion. Hell. Hell. Many of you know I'm working on a paper on eternal judgment. In many ways, I've been spending way too much time thinking about hell. But it dawned on me that one of the miseries of hell is the dwelling together with wicked people. People talk about a hell on earth. Imagine being for all eternity, with backbiters, haters, immoral, and on and on in description of the ungodly. But let me remind you again of the grace of God. As you read Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, very similar to what we just read in Revelation, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Salvation is by grace, through faith in Lord Jesus. He was born and dwelt among us so that ultimately and finally we can dwell with him on this earth that's totally free from sin. Will you be there? The gift of salvation is offered to all. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a wonderful time of the year to be saved. Christmas.
Christmas. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Looking forward to that final dwelling with him for all eternity future. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you with thankful hearts, grateful for that day that is coming in which you will dwell with us. We will be your people and you will be our God. We will see your face. We will worship and serve you. Your name will be on our foreheads. Lord, we will not at all long for this former existence. We'll be delighted in the new existence. Grateful that there's no more reason for weeping, death, sorrow, misery, or heartache. For you have provided nothing but blessing and joy in delivering us from our sin and transforming this world in what it was intended to be before the fall, before Adam and Eve disobeyed you. So, Lord, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ so that you will dwell with us forever. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.